The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Now, who are these ten virgins? Let me give you the modern equivalent. So it's broader than just the bridegroom and the bride. Now there are these ten virgins. These ten, who are these ten virgins involved in this wedding? They're the bridesmaids. That's what we would call it uh, in modern times. So those who were foolish, so Jesus says the whole point of my story is that five were wise and five were foolish. Obviously, we want to emulate the wise ones and we want to not do what the foolish ones did. So those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not be enough for us and you. But you go, rather, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And so while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him into the wedding. And then the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. All right, so here's the story. In biblical times, the engaged couple, when they got engaged in in Jewish custom, they were legally married. And they were, but even though they're legally married at the day of engagement, the wedding is probably not for a year away. So they do not cohabitate. Even though they're legally married at engagement, they have to wait a year until the actual wedding, and then they come together. So um, this is different than our culture. So in our culture, when you ask the girl to marry you, take her out maybe a special place and and a dinner, and then you bring her to somewhere and you get down on your knee, And you say, will you marry me? And you open a box and you have this engagement ring. And she goes, oh my, you know, and (laughs) she looks at the ring and says, yes or no. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, (laughs) she says, yes. And now you're engaged and you give her the engagement ring. And then you set a date, but you're not married. You're committed, you're engaged, but you get married with witnesses, family and friends, you know, whenever you set the date. In a Jewish culture, Very, very different. When the young Jewish man would go to the bride's house where her father was, in fact, he he had to be there, her father had to be there, and he would do these three things. Number one, he would share his vows. Now, this is engagement. Here's my promise to you, how I love you. After he made his vows to her, they would drink a cup of wine together. 
And then thirdly, he had to literally purchase his bride. He had to pay money, a dowry, to her dad. And the dowry was a, it was kind of like, this is what it's cost me to raise my daughter, on the one hand. And secondly, it's like, and I really love my daughter. And as all good father-in-laws, I don't know that I trust you with my daughter. But if you really love her, they said that the Jewish father would put the price of the, of the bride according to his love for his daughter. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, that is our engagement. That's when Jesus made vows to the church. And then they drank a cup of wine together in the Passover meal. And the third thing Jesus did is he went and he paid the price, the dowry, that was set by the father of the bride. We, the church, are the bride. Our dad said, son, if you love her, it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you everything. And Jesus willingly and gladly went and then paid the price and the dowry. So that's what we have. And so now, uh, then every young Jewish man gave the same speech to the bride. He would say, okay, now that we're engaged, we're legally married, uh, and now I have to go back to my father's house, and on his property, our house, you know, our family property, I have to build our wedding house our bridal chamber. So I'm leaving you. But when the house is finished, I'll come back. So the, the, you know, the, the girl would then say, okay, now I know I've got about a year to prepare. I got to get my dress. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, I've got to get my bridesmaids. So she had 10 of them. And so, you know, the year goes by and she's preparing. By the way, how long does a, uh, an ancient, uh, traditional Jewish wedding last? Seven days. How many think that weddings are getting more and more and more expensive? <laughs> but they're only one day. In a Jewish wedding, you had to pay for the people and food and wine for seven days. It was a big deal. So she's getting ready. Now, she starts hearing after a year, you know, the, her girlfriends come and report to her house is basically done. The last couple of weeks, it really was building suspense. They, they knew that it was coming at any time. So they would stay up and wait. They're getting ready. They're getting prepared. So um, it was a call to preparedness. Okay, there it is. I was looking for this. Okay. Um, I want you to write this down. Bridesmaids must live in an atmosphere of readiness. Now, five were wise already, five were foolish. What is the difference? The foolish ones took lamps, but they had no oil. Now, that's a serious problem because you have to have oil burning lamps. That's the most essential thing, an ingredient on the night that the wedding begins. Note this, Jewish weddings often began at midnight. They often began at midnight. So by contrast, uh, so they, they had the oil lamps. So what happens is when, you know, the young man comes and they're ready to take the bride out into the night, you had to have your lamp with enough oil to light your way because you had to go to the other side of the village and you had to have enough light to get there so you don't, you know, soil your dress so you don't fall down into a ditch so you don't rub up against a rock or whatever. You needed light. So five were foolish. They only had enough light 
Um, and, and what would happen is, the last couple of weeks, the bride would, would invite all of her bridesmaids over to her house. They would take turns, two at a time, in watches through the night, sitting by the window with it open, waiting, watching, and listening uh, for the shouts of the bridegroom and letting the bride get her beauty sleep, all right? So it was very exciting to see this. So um, they had to have enough oil ready to go. But the five foolish had lamps. Even to this day, you can get a, a clay lamp. Sometimes in Israel, they have ancient 2,000-year-old little clay lamps that they used. And you have oil in it. But now it was burning low for five of them, and they didn't have any uh, enough oil. But here's what the five wise virgins did. The five wise virgins not only had oil for their being in the home that night, but they had oil for the journey. Therefore, they are called wise. And I want you to note this. The five wise bridesmaids had extra virgin oil. Come on. Not just oil. Extra virgin oil. It's in the Bible. But the others did not have enough. Now, let's go to this. A Jewish wedding always has an element of surprise to add suspense. There was usually an element of surprise as to when the groom's father would announce the start of the ceremony. By the way, again, to remind you, the young man nor the young lady got to choose the day of their wedding. That was left to the father of the bridegroom. Remember, he's at his, you know, family farm, and his son has come back after he's become engaged, legally married, to the bride. But now he comes back and he's got to build a house that they will share as husband and wife, that they will have their children. So it's, you know, dad's grandchildren. And it was not left up to the son to decide the house. Because if it was left up to the son, he could put up, some, you know, a lean-to and say, hey, let's get married tomorrow night. And the father's like, no, 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 no. You're going to build a real house family room, you're going to have, you know, bedrooms, you're going to have, you know, it's got to be real, the real deal. And I will decide when it's good enough. So it usually took about a year. And then finally, the son is like, okay, dad, can I go get my bride? And, um, and the girls, you know, the, the bride and all the bridesmaids are like, it's any day now. But the Jewish fathers had a custom where at the very last couple of weeks, it is basically done, but within the last week or two, they played this kind of a game, like, yeah, you're almost there, son. It's close. You could do a little bit better here, a little bit better there. And their custom was to wait until one night they knew that their son had fallen asleep, exhausted, because he's tried to do everything he can think of to answer what his dad is looking for. So the fathers would wait. Their son is dead asleep, and now at midnight, he goes in and grabs his son and shakes him and says, son, wake up, wake up. You can go get your bride. And the first thing the young man does is screams and shouts, woohoo! <laughs> and then he gets up really fast. He goes, okay, dad, gives him a high five, runs out and gets all the other, apparently 10, groomsmen, goes to their house, hey, hey, banging on doors. 
And the young men, now you've got from the one man yelling and shouting, you've got all the other young men yelling and shouting, and now 11 of them go running through the fields and the farms to the other side of the village where the girl's house is, yelling, screaming, shouting, singing, hooping, hollering. They're making a noise. Just like here, when, you know, people honk their horn and when they have the tin cans, you know, following the carts, you're making a lot of noise. It's celebration. But that's what he would wait until midnight, pick a time they were not expecting. And then the father would blow a ram's horn and the wedding processional would begin. So we read in the scriptures. So Jesus, you know, he wasn't kidding when he said, I don't know the day or the hour. He was saying what every young Jewish man said. I don't know. I don't get to pick. It's my dad. It's up to my dad. He's the one that will pick. I don't know the day or the hour. So in a moment that we don't know, but you can basically tell when you're getting close. Now, let me just say this. Jesus said, I'm leaving you. I'm going to my father's house. I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Do you realize that's the speech every young Jewish man gave? I'm going to build our home. When it's done, I will come back. Now, how long has Jesus been gone? 2,000 years. He still hasn't come back. Apparently, he's still getting it ready. Can you imagine what he has prepared for you and I in 2,000 years? Have you seen what he did with just six days? Now, multiply that by 2,000 years. I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So that's the suspense. Now, Jesus said it in the last chapter, Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 and 44. I kind of put those two together. So let's read this out loud. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. With great singing, shouting, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Why is he shouting? Because he's coming for his bride. That first ear-splitting sound will come from the heavens above. It will be the voice, the first time that we will have heard the voice of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Why is he yelling and shouting with joy? Because he's coming for you and me. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. The angels, are, are, they're going to be, you know, like the groomsmen shouting along with him. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Just like a Jewish father would blow the ram's horn. The wedding's tonight. And all the people wake up in the village. They go, whoa, what's the yelling, screaming, shouting, trumpets? Well, they know it's a wedding. And then they will know who is getting married. So let's look at this. The lamp. What is the lamp? Let's talk a little bit about what is all the symbols here mean. The lamp is a symbol of the word. The oil is a symbol of the spirit and relationship. What I mean by relationship is obedience. You're walking in obedience. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
So the word of God is, is powerful and it's a light for us. So we have to have the Holy Spirit. So what happened to the five foolish virgins? They had the lamp, but they ran out of oil and they couldn't make the journey. And if I may say that now they want to, hey, give us some of your oil. And the five wise are like, well, no, that could compromise us. We got a long journey in the night. We want to make it there. And by the way, we prepared, we were ready, we have enough oil, but we don't want to risk. I mean, you know, the weddings like this, you don't get a second chance. You're going to, you don't get a redo. We got oil, we were ready, we were prepared. You did not get the oil, you are not ready. So go buy some. Can I tell you, when you need oil and you're supposed to be going to a wedding in the middle of the night, now you're going to miss the whole thing. The worst time that you go to get oil is at midnight. They had to go to the, you know, wherever the guy's place was and wait until the morning came up and bang on the door, try to get oil. So that when they finally came back and when they got there, the door was closed and it's too late. And when he comes out, he says, I don't know you. Why would that sound mean? You have to understand this a little bit culturally. Like, I can't even begin to tell you how much disrespect it is. You've had a year. You're supposedly, you know, my son or my daughter's friends, and you were not ready, and you were not prepared, and you knew the house. You knew it was going to be any day now, and you were just living for yourself. And then, you know, the embarrassment, and then you're going off to get it. No. If you're going to treat my son that way, I don't know you. Or you're going to treat my wife, my, today we're going to be married. I don't know you. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, it does say that all ten were virgins. So they were Jewish, and they were living according to the law. They were not cohabitating with their boyfriends. They were waiting for their day and for their marriage or whatever. And they had their clay jars. They had what you need in order to hold the oil so you put the wick in it and you get light. But they didn't have the oil. May I say to you that I believe in a way this is, a, is symbolic of those who have a... The Bible says there are those who have the form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They look good on the outside. I got the lamp. I was at the girl's house. My best friend, she's getting married. I got the lamp. It looks good but you don't have the oil, so you don't have the light, so you can't go out, so you're going to miss the whole thing. So the oil is a symbol of, look, just because it's, Anne said it so eloquently last week, just because you go to church does not make you a Christian. Any more than being in a garage makes you a car. <laughs> you have to have a personal relationship. There must come a definite moment in time in your life where you confess your sins, where you ask forgiveness, where you ask Christ in your life, and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and you're born again. Jesus said you must be born again. Now, do you know why Jesus said you must be born again? Because you must be born again to go into heaven. You have to be saved. Well, I went to church my whole life. I went to Sunday school. I went to Awana. I got baptized. Great. All outward. But was there the inward of what that really means? Is there that time and moment where you ask Christ to come into your life? They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. And I believe symbolically it's speaking of those who really, you know, they're going to be shocked when Jesus comes. Because when the bridegroom actually sh uh, showed up, the whole point is it was later than they thought it would be. They had fallen asleep. They knew it was any day, obviously. 
But he came so late in the night, they fell asleep, and then they were shocked to be awakened, and then they found out they weren't prepared. They weren't ready. You've got to know the Lord. You've got to be saved. You've got to be born again. So I want to say this. I want to say that right now, um, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. The world was clueless as to what time it was. And I want to tell you right now, Jesus is coming back. We're, we're in the last couple of weeks. The house he has prepared is about finished. The father, any day and any midnight, is going to tell his son, it's time to go get your bride. You're going to hear some shouts and some hollerings. But there are many virgins, many moral people, religious people, spiritual people who are not actually saved or born again with the oil of the Holy Spirit in them, that when the Lord comes, will be left out, left behind, as it were. They're not ready. They're not really prepared. So I want to say this to those who are hearing this now, those who are listening on radio, those who are watching online, those who will ever hear this message, hear my voice. Hear my voice, I speak to your spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. If you have not been born again, if you have not been forgiven, if you have not been filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are a prodigal son, maybe for years or decades, or you're just now running away from him, compromised, you don't know where you stand. Well, he doesn't know where you stand. And he may say to you, I don't know you. So hear his voice. If you're a prodigal daughter, Hear his voice. God is shaking the world. God is shaking the nations. He's shaking everything up. He is going after the prodigals, after the prodigal sons and daughters. He's going after the wanderers. He's going after those who are experimenting in the world and try a little of this and a little of that and making it up as you go. You have a lamp, but if you don't have the oil of the Holy Spirit, it could be too late when he comes suddenly. And, and the idea is that, that in the days of Noah, when the, when the rain and the flood finally started, the people went, oh, no. And the whole world was caught unprepared for what was about to happen. So hear my voice. And here's what I want to say. I, I, I can see the, the man or the woman that is really compromised and you really are not right with the Lord and you're not ready for him to come. And I will say this to you, you, you are living in a state of anxiety and fear and confusion because you're trying, to make, you're trying to make it up as you go and you're trying to mingle all this stuff and it doesn't mingle and you're getting further and further into darkness. And right now the word of the Lord is coming like a sword, but it's a beautiful light. It's a light it is the light of the glory of God. It's the light of sunshine. It's the light of freedom. It's the light of love and joy and peace and heaven and all the angels of God and the kingdom of God. And I am telling you, God is seeking to crack open a little window in your mind or a little crack in the door of your heart and a tiny bit of light is coming in. I tell you in the name of Jesus, when you see that crack of light, run, run, run to that light. Run from the darkness. Run from the demons. Run from the lies. Run from the compromise. Run to the Lord with everything you've got, in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, Psalm 27, real quick. You know, we're going to be celebrating, we've started celebrating the feasts of the Lord, the seven feasts of the Lord. They're in Leviticus 23. God told the children of Israel, 
I want you to come to my house, every one of you. I don't care if you live in Galilee. I don't care if you live down in the desert, if you live on the coast, Mediterranean, or you live over there by Jordan. I want you in my house seven times a year, the seven feasts of the Lord. All seven of those feasts point to the Messiah, Jesus. All seven of those feasts are fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. The first one is called Passover. And they're called rehearsals. The Lord said, I I want you to do this as dress rehearsals. For 1,500 years, they'd done the dress rehearsal of Passover. But it's like practicing. It's a rehearsal. But one year, you go from rehearsal to reality. And the year that Jesus was crucified on the day of the feast of Passover, they moved from preparing and rehearsing to the reality, there was the Lamb of God, literally on the first of the seven feasts of the Lord, on the day of Passover, he was crucified as the Lamb of God. The second feast is the next day. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven is a type of sin. Bread without leaven is a type of a body without sin. That's Jesus, and on that day, he was buried. Guess what? Feast number three comes on day three. What's it called? The Feast of First Fruits. Jesus, on the third day, was the first human being to rise from the dead. And he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Literally on the day. Fifty days later, on the day of the fourth feast, Pentecost, boom, the Holy Spirit fell. And Peter preached and 3,000 got saved and the church was born. All four of those feasts are in the spring. We're getting ready to celebrate it just Close now. That's what Good Friday and Easter is all about, those feasts and Jesus fulfilling them. Those four in the spring point to the first coming of Christ. After those four, you have the summer, no feasts. It's called the summer harvest. And I believe that's the church age, 2,000 years. God's been taking a Jew and a Gentile, bringing them together, building his church for 2,000 years. But in the fall, you have three feasts left. And those three feasts point to the second coming of Messiah. And the next one on the list to be fulfilled is called the Feast of Trumpets. And we're going to be celebrating that. And I don't know for sure. Look, I believe in the rapture. I believe the Lord is coming. I believe that there's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled. The Lord could come at any moment at any time. But it is interesting to me now that I know and understand the Feast of Trumpets, which is celebrated on the first day of the seventh month on the new moon. And they have to, to make sure they got the new moon on the right day, They go, let's do two days. Instead of one day, we might have missed it a little bit. So to be accurate, let's do it over two days. So where two people, two priests could visibly see the new moon. And because it was over a two-day period, they call it the feast. You don't know the day or the hour. What did Jesus say? You don't know the day or the hour. But it's possible one year on a feast of trumpets, we could hear the trumpet and the Lord would call us home. Amen? So let's read this out loud. Every feast of trumpets... This psalm is read. Psalm 27, verse 1. Let's read it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I love that. It talks about the light of God and the glory of God and the Feast of Trumpets. And the next one that I want to put there, Psalm 27, verse 4. Let's read this. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I just want to be with you, Abba Father. And then verse 5, we'll 
stop with this one. Let's read it. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. This is read at the Feast of Trumpets. Lord, you are my light. Hide me in your pavilion. Pavilion, the Hebrew word is sukkah, basically. And then he goes on to say the secret place of the tabernacle. He shall hide me and shall set me high upon a rock. Glory, hallelujah. Amen. You want to be hidden in Christ with all that's coming to this world. Okay, so now I need to do something. I needed a sip of water, but I want to I share something with you. And, and what I'm sharing now, I want to just preface it by saying this. Please do not be offended. Um, because I'm not speaking politically right now, though I'm going to speak of some political characters. And I want this, what I'm speaking to you is from Scripture, but I want you to hear it, and I want you to listen to it, because I believe it's very important, and God put it on my heart. I want you to write this down, the Cyrus Mandate, the Cyrus Mandate, because what I want to tell you is that, you know, 2,500 years ago, the Babylonians destroyed Israel and Jerusalem, and God allowed them to do it because Israel compromised and started worshiping idols. And God's like, are you kidding me? Even in Jerusalem, in the temple, the Jews were bowing down to gods that they had set up in the temple. And God's like, uh-uh. You reject me? Fine. But not here. I'm going to let the Babylonians come, and they're going to take everything away. You, you, you have been disloyal, unfaithful to me. And so they came and they wiped it out. And they took the treasures to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. But then God told Jeremiah the prophet, after 70 years, I'm going to send you back. Because I'm going to cure you of idol worship. And let me tell you this. God can cure you of unfaithfulness, idolatry, adultery, having false boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever sexual stuff on the side. Those are demonic idols that are ripping your soul out of your heart. And God says, I'll cure you. You want to worship idols? Go to the capital of idolatry for 70 years. And they did. And he said, you will repent of any time that you bowed down to a false god. And you will come back home and you will be loyal unto me. And when you come back, I'm going to let you rebuild. But I'm going to help you. And God literally chose a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus was to give a command to rebuild Jerusalem. He's a pagan king, a pagan ruler. Uh, as far as we know, he didn't know God. But he gave a command to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And God used Cyrus in that way. What I want to say to you is that everything that has happened in the past will happen again. Everything that happened in the Bible before will happen again. Prophecy often has a double fulfillment, multiple fulfillments, because there are patterns in prophecy. By the way, that's why we read the Bible and study the Bible. And some people are like, eh, it's old history. It's what happened in the past, what God said in the past, what God did in the past. Well, listen, if you know what prophecy is, you better study history and what God said in the past, he's going to say today. What God did in the past, God's going to do again today. The patterns of the past are the prophecy 
of what God is going to do tomorrow. And literally, if you know the history of God's ways, it becomes the headlines of tomorrow. I've mentioned to you that because, look, God, God used Cyrus. He used a pagan king of a superpower because Cyrus conquered Babylon. And I want to tell you today that God uses political leaders. God communicates to political leaders, whether they know him or not. Why? Because they have power over millions of people's lives. Now, do you remember Pharaoh? Did he love God, worship God, follow God? No. Did God communicate to Pharaoh? God gave Pharaoh a dream. There was another Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And God gave him a dream. And in that dream, because Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, oh, I, wanna, I want my kingdom to last forever. And he had this dream of the image of a man. And the you know, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet, iron and clay. And then a rock, unhewn from human hands, comes, strikes the image at its toes, and the whole image of the man comes crashing down and becomes rubble, and that rock grows into a mountain. You know what God gave in that dream to Nebuchadnezzar? The whole future of the history of the governments of mankind, all the way to the coming of the King, Jesus Christ. You are that head of gold. Now, here's the thing. So he has this dream, but he doesn't know what it means. Later in the book of Daniel, there was a king making fun of God, drinking from the golden vessels from the temple, saying, ha, ha, the Jews and their God, ha, 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 watch me drink wine out of their golden vessels from the temple. And all of us, and he had all of the people from, he, he had the whole world under his, and they're having a political party, drinking and whatever else. And then a hand appears on the wall without a body writing words that everybody could see. Have you ever heard the expression, the handwriting on the wall? It comes from the Bible. It's in the book of Daniel. And the king got so scared, it says his knees smote one against another. <laughs> and then in King James, it says he loosed his loins. Do I need to translate that for you? <laughs> but the king did not know how to interpret it. So he got his people that were in the occult, witches, warlocks, soothsayers, mediums, because he had a whole staff of them that he used and paid for and clothed and treated well. He says, tell me what that means. They're like, oh, we don't know. And finally, somebody said, hey, you know the, the Jews, their God, that they say is above all gods? They've got a young man. And he says, he can reveal secrets. And Daniel goes to God and prays. And God says, Daniel, I'm going to tell you what it means. Here's the point of the whole story. The handwriting is on the wall for this generation right now. I'm telling you, there's a big hand writing in the sky. He's writing ge geopolitically. He's writing economically. He's writing on every nation. There's handwriting on the wall. But the world sees the handwriting on the wall. They feel and are shaking to their bones, but they don't know how to interpret it. But you, a child of God, have been given the word of God. You, like Daniel, can interpret because God's given the interpretation in his word. So listen. So it goes from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. That's history. Everybody knows it. And then the two legs are Rome. 
There's a western leg of Rome, and literally, Rome never gets replaced. It just goes into these ten toes that came out of the two legs of Rome. Rome never goes away. I've mentioned that Rome was divided, as Daniel saw, into two legs. Western, and, it, and I'm just going to go fast, but the western leg of Rome, it started in Rome and in Europe, but it moved west, and I want to say to you that today, that Washington, D.C. is the extension of the power of western Rome. The eastern leg continued to spread east and now resides in Moscow. And the leader of the Western Roman Empire would be the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And the leader of the Eastern Empire, the Roman modern times, would be Vladimir Putin. So what I want to say to you is Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. And Hadrian gave a restraining order that the Jews, you know, may not rebuild their temple. They cannot have Jerusalem as their capital. And it was in effect for 2,000 years. The same Rome that dismantled Jerusalem and the temple, Rome must now lift that restraining order. So here's what I want to share with you guys. How many of you know that there is a thing today right now called the Cyrus coin? How many of you have heard of the Cyrus coin? Okay, maybe 20 or so. There's the Cyrus coin. It was made basically in Israel. It started in 2016. Now, let me show you. That's the coin. It has two faces and two images at the bottom of the coin. The one in the back is a guy named Cyrus, the guy that we just talked about that's from the Bible, that commanded Jerusalem to be rebuilt and then the temple. The guy in the foreground in front of him is who? This is made by the Jews in Israel. And by the way, when I heard about this, and by the way, so that's one side of the coin. Look, they got the, that menorah is what goes into the temple. You got Cyrus and Trump. Orthodox Jews are calling our President Trump. So this is not me commenting on it. I'm just telling you what Orthodox Jews say about our president. They say he is Cyrus for today. Here's the other side of the coin. You know what's on the other side of the coin? That's a picture of the temple. What did Cyrus do? He came to rebuild Jerusalem, and the second side of the coin is he helped inaugurate the rebuilding of their temple. So that's where we are, and that is what is happening right now. Did you know that there is a modern Sanhedrin in Israel. There hasn't been a Sanhedrin in Israel for 2,000 years. But today, not only is there an Israel, there is a Sanhedrin. And by the way, you know, when they got together back in 2016, uh, they celebrated when on December the 6th, 2017, our president... Uh, said, we're moving our embassy from Tel Aviv, we're moving it to Jerusalem as the eternal and the undivided capital of the nation of Israel. And they said, you are Cyrus, you are being Cyrus. And then they said, but you've only fulfilled half of your mandate. Half of the mandate is to recognize Jerusalem, the other half of the mandate is that you would rebuild the temple. So in 2016, the, the reconvened Sanhedrin sent two letters. They sent one letter to President Trump in the United States, and they sent another letter to Vladimir Putin in Russia asking 
Russia and America to join forces and work together to fulfill their biblically mandated roles by rebuilding the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Rabbi Weiss, one of the leaders of the modern reconvened Sanhedrin, said this, and I quote, the leaders of Russia and America can lead the nations of the world to global peace through building the temple, the source of peace. And they know that they need them both. They're basically asking Rome, rebuild what you tore down. Take away your restraining order and bring it back. So not only did we have the president recognize December 6, 2017, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, but now, just a month ago, on January the 28th, President Trump announced, I have the peace deal of the century. You realize where this is heading? We're talking, we're going into Bible times. You know, the Bible says there'll be a covenant for peace at the end of time, and it'll begin really well, but it won't end well. That's where we are. So what I'm wanting to say to you as my brothers and sisters are, not, I'm, not, I'm not asking do you have the lamp of religiosity. I'm asking do you have the oil that brings the light of the fire of the Holy Spirit inside of you? Do you know and realize what is happening, what time it is? Are you ready? Are you awake? Time is short. And I believe the headlines of tomorrow will be breakthrough in Israel for peace. And then sometime after that, and now a place for the Jewish people to worship on Temple Mount. These are going to be the headlines of tomorrow. So we have a lot to wake up to, a lot to get ready for, a lot to say, Lord, how then should we live? This is all facts. These are all what's being laid out. So are you hearing? Do you have oil? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you understand this is not a time to be messing around with idols and false boyfriends and girlfriends of the world and the flesh and the devil and to live with passion and with purity and with fire and to be seeking the Lord and share your faith boldly, unapologetically, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.